Today we're talking about babies in lockdown. Between the 23rd of March and the 4th of July, 200,000 babies were born when lockdown was at its most restrictive. I'm joined by Sally Hogg to discuss a report that was launched on the 5th of August about this. Before we talk about this new report, Sally, can you introduce yourself as one of the report's authors and the work done by the Parent Infant Foundation, one of the organisations that collaborated on this report? Hi Dave, it's nice to be here. Um, so uh, I'm Sally Hogg, I'm the Head of Policy and Campaigning at the Parent Infant Foundation and we are a charity that supports the development of um, parent infant relationship teams or otherwise known as infant mental health teams across the UK um, and we also campaign to ensure that babies get the support they need for their kind of early relationships which we know are critical for early development. Um, I'm also the coordinator of the First 1001 Days movement which is a movement of over 140 organisations that campaign together about um, the importance of the period from conception to two. Um, and we did the report in partnership with two other organisations which are on a part of that movement as well, which is Homestart UK and um, Best Beginnings. And can you just give me some info on the work that those two organisations do? Yeah, sure. So um, Best Beginnings um, work through digital mediums. So they, um, they're kind of mostly through um, an app called the Baby Buddy app, which supports um, parents with kind of information and advice and kind of videos and different content through pregnancy and, and the early months of their baby's life. Um, but they're involved in lots of other, other kind of projects as well, and um, particularly using kind of digital stuff to reach out to, to more um, marginalised communities. Um, and then Homestart UK are... Um, a charity that has a lot of local branches around the UK which work largely through volunteers who offer kind of practical and emotional support to families who are having a difficult time. I suppose it's good that the two organisations are working together really aren't they because they kind of work both in the same kind of space but work on the alternative ends of the digital versus human kind of thing and, and it's nice to see the two organisations including your organisation working so closely together on this. Yeah I mean between us so we're kind of much more about specialist services the other two are um, kind of universal and targeted um, and like you say we've got the kind of professionals, um, the, the kind of parents and peer-to-peer -peer support um, and, and digital. So kind of a full spectrum of, of the offer there. Yeah, and I'd certainly encourage anyone listening along to find out more information about each of the three organisations if they weren't aware of them already. Although I know as a dad myself that I've heard of Homestart and uh, Baby Buddy app, you know, I, I, I downloaded it on my phone uh, when I was in the throes of, of young uh, fatherhood. Uh, so how is this report coming to existence and how was the data it presents collected? So um, it came about through, I had, um, there was a lot of fantastic collaboration between charities um, at the start of lockdown, really looking at how could we support each other, how could we work together and how could we really be that united voice for families. And in those meetings, I was kind of talking to different people, all obviously by Zoom, um, I haven't actually met any of the people I've been collaborating. I feel like I've been in their living rooms a lot for the last few months or their kitchens, but not actually met them in person. Anyway, so through these Zoom conversations, um, I spoke to Becky Saunders at Homestock UK, who was saying that she'd had an offer of pro bono support from Critical Research, who were the, the research company who could do the online survey. And she wanted to use that to really capture the voices of families in the first thousand days of pregnancy to age two because she felt that those voices and she was very right in this weren't being reflected there was a lot about school-aged children but not so much about younger families 
Um, I also had a chat as part of one of those conversations with um, Alison and her team at Best Beginnings, who were also looking at running a survey and they'd done um, a survey through the app to get some parent, initial stuff from parents, but they were looking at taking that widely. And I was like, hang on, you guys need to be talking. So I kind of connected them up and I also said, look, you know, if we can help with that and if through the first thousand days movement, we can help to kind of amplify and get their survey out there, then let us help. So that's how the kind of three organizations came together. Um, and it was an online survey. So critical research gave us this pro bono support. To put, um, and so we developed the survey together, but we also talked to officials at the Department for Health. We talked to Jacqueline Dunkley Bent, the chief midwife, various others, and said, what do you need to know to help inform your response? Um, and we tested out the kind of emerging survey with parents to make sure it worked for them and they were comfortable asking the questions. So that's how it got designed. Um, it was then an online survey and we worked very hard to get the link to that survey out through lots of different channels and really had fantastic support from loads of other charities and, and organisations around the UK who, were, who would promote that to families. We were really conscious that we wanted to ensure that um, the voices of kind of more marginalised communities were heard um, and that we reached people who wouldn't necessarily normally be reflecting this sort of work. So we did quite a lot of work with... Um, particular community groups and with also with online and social media influencers to try and reach particularly black Asian and minority ethnic families but also a kind of more diverse range um, and, and we had over 5,000 families complete the survey which was great and it wasn't fully representative of, of the UK population but we had large numbers from kind of traditionally underrepresented groups um, enough for us to do kind of good analysis and make sure that their voices were represented. Yeah, because I was just looking at the back, there's information about the work that uh, Baby Buddy app uh, has done and uh, the, the kind of the coverage that they have of more marginalised groups that don't normally uh, engage in services. So, you know, it's, it's, it's positive again to see that kind of the, the link and, and the work done on that. Hearing about how the survey came about and formulation, what are the headline results from the survey? And I think you had about 5,474 people respond to it. So that's an amazing response. Yeah. I think there are three key messages. One, that it was a really varied picture. So there wasn't a kind of uniform experience, um, which won't surprise you because there is no uniform experience of parenting generally. But, you know, we found that some families actually, in some ways, had some benefits from, from this, particularly, you know, dads being at home, not having the kind of stress of juggling so much. Um, but there were also families having an incredibly difficult time, being very anxious, high levels of mental health concerns. So six, over 60% of parents told us that they were worried about their mental health and seven in 10 thought it was affecting their baby. So it was a diverse thing, but there was definitely kind of a lot of families that we need to be concerned about. And some of those concerns were things that we know as kind of as professionals who are kind of steeped in the research and the, the kind of understanding of, of the first thousand days, things that are signs that families might have kind of struggles that, that could potentially cast a long shadow for their children if they're not tackled. So we know that um, family stress, poverty, um, parents' mental health problems, early relationship issues, we know that those things, if not supported and tackled early, can have an impact on child development. So there were concerns that the families were reporting worries. And if we match those with what we know about the research child development, there were things that we should all be worried about for, for children to give their children the best advice in life. Um, and then the third 
kind of finding was that the pandemic really exacerbated inequalities. So groups that we already know are at risk of poor outcomes. So younger parents, low income families um, and families from black and ethnic minority communities, black, Asian and minority ethnic communities were all um, likely to report having a tougher time and also kind of struggling to access services um, across a range of different measures. And it wasn't a kind of uniform picture, but there were definitely um, things were looking worse for the groups that we would be worried about anyway. Yeah, and just looking at some of the headings from the executive summary, uh, I certainly encourage people to, to take a look at it, you know, after having heard podcast. Obviously, you've broken it down into the impact of COVID-19 on babies, uh, the COVID-19 on parents. Uh, and again, you know, in terms of that, down into all the different sort of times of the parenting journey in the, in the first thousand one critical days. I think it was also interesting because you picked up on people that have, have children that work in services as well. Uh, and I, I think that's a, a, a nice extra element to the, the survey that you've done. Uh, do you feel like there's any other kind of highlights that you'd want to sort of talk about today that, that we've not already covered? There's so much information that we pulled out, um, so many stories. So those are the, the kind of headline ones, concerns about parental health, about, about the impact on babies. As you say, the kind of key worker stuff is really interesting and really feeling that there's a lack of, that, that those key workers were being pulled in two directions, that they were being told that they were key workers and that they were actually important, but then also that they were pregnant perhaps or um, from black asian and minority ethnic communities or maybe both of those things and what you know what were they supposed to do and and how did they kind of square that circle so that was really difficult feeling like they just didn't have the information and the advice and the support they needed to deal with that there was also stuff around the digital pivot as it's been called so services moving to being online and some women feeling really exposed by that so a horrible story in there of a woman who was asked to send her gp's receptionist a photo of infected episiotomy stitches just the lack of dignity there and dehumanizing um so kind of really horrible stuff there and around breastfeeding support you know people having to show their bodies on camera in a way that just this isn't really appropriate there's a kind of big theme about breastfeeding support in there and also again kind of just showing it, we don't have comparators for some of this stuff in the survey so so and we know some of this isn't great at the best of times but it's kind of been highlighted particularly by covid so there was one woman who tried to go outside with her baby and uh, needed to breastfeed and was moved on by police for breastfeeding on a bench in a park because that wasn't kind of seen as appropriate so just you know a real lack of, of society kind of supporting and understanding the needs of, the, of these families a lot of different stories some fantastic stories of professionals who really stepped up and did wonderful things despite the difficulties um, and that's really true in birth stories as well so a feeling that the kind of policies that were put in place were really detrimental to families so dads not being able to go to scans dads not being able to be with women who were in late early labor or even not in, in labor at all if they had childcare issues so that some of that stuff was really hard and, and um parents being limited from seeing babies in NICU but at the same time feeling that a lot of the, the kind of midwives who were trying to help women through that difficult kind of situation were, were going above and beyond particular things about our system being kind of highlighted so we have huge numbers of women in the UK who have induced labor um, and they were particularly disadvantaged by some of the policies around not being able to have a partner with you until you're in established labour, because obviously they were, they then had the whole of their early labour alone in hospital, whereas had they gone into natural labour at home, at least they could have stayed at home with a partner and then gone into hospital and established labour a bit together. So, um, yeah, lots of kind of, lots and lots of interesting and, and very powerful findings. <laughs>
of messages that you would hope that policy people would take on board. And certainly as you've been speaking, thinking back to the speech that Matt Hancock gave a few weeks ago, where he talked about the kind of digital first policy that he wants to adopt going beyond this and, and certainly in terms of, you know, GP appointments that, you know, it should be a digital first approach. I, I suppose it really highlights how that might be really inappropriate at times. Uh, and if it is appropriate, how we do need to think about the way that that's carried out and that, that it is uh, done in a, in a sensitive and caring way to people that are accessing services. Yeah, I mean, I think there are huge issues around some of that stuff um, for some of the families in this report and generally for families with young children. So, um, you know, I can see how if you're an adult with a chronic condition, you just want a repeat conscription or a check in with your GP. I can see how digital could be great for everybody involved there. But I, I, mean, I think, you know, connection and relationships are so important. We know that from all of our work and they are more difficult online. And there's that what, what I've kind of sometimes heard as the sort of door handle conversation that, you know, the stuff that isn't what you came to see the GP about, but or, or the head health officer, but comes out as part of those conversations. So I, I don't know the data around this, but I wonder about how much maternal mental health problems come through a mum coming through at to talk about her baby or to talk about something else and then through that conversation opening up about her mental health rather than ever making an explicit appointment to talk about it um, and, and I worry therefore that we don't pick that sort of stuff up if we go to a really streamlined digital world and um, obviously there are all these issues about dignity um, and what that kind of feels like and particularly you know if you've had a traumatic birth or whatever your your kind of history around your body is you know we don't know what it might feel okay for some women but feel very very difficult and inappropriate for others um, and some stuff is just inappropriate for all women. Um, and then um, and then there's this, the children. I mean, children are in, invisible a lot on digital contacts. So um, so from my personal experience, I've got a three-year-old and he has had a couple of appointments with a GP since lockdown, both of which have just involved the GP phoning me up and talking to me. So he is not being spoken to. He's not being seen. You know, that's not good enough from his point of view as a, as a as a person who deserves to be talked to and seen, but also, you know, all the safeguarding, no one's seeing him, no one's seeing he's okay, there's no safeguarding opportunity, there's no one seeing how I react with him. So I think we really have to question for the first thousand one days and families and for young children whether a digital first approach is right. I think there are definitely, you know, there are some advantages to, to blended approaches. You know, for some families it is easier to, to just go online rather than, you know, if you're you've got low income and you're navigating awful public transport and, and all of that, then, then there are advantages, but we've got to be very, very careful about it. One of the important parts of the report is that you've made three policy proposals. So I don't know if you want to talk about each of the three and maybe go into a little bit of detail. They're all focused around spending. We know that that's not going to solve all of the issues, but we've got such a kind of depleted system that there has to be kind of money going into it to enable quality and change alongside other things. Um, so there are three asks. The first one is, is what we call the baby boost. And that's a kind of 55 million injection of cash into the system right now to help um, services, whether they be statutory or charity services, to support those families who've had a baby in or around lockdown, who therefore have missed out on kind of really important con um, contacts. They've had a really tough time. There's probably a higher incidence of things like postnatal depression or feeding issues or birth trauma in that group. Um, so there's a kind of, there's a need to catch up and help that group to recover. 
and that's the, the way we worked that out was looking at, at kind of um what's been done for older children so we looked at the money that's been given for schools which roughly equates about just over 100 quid a kid um and we said you know that needs to be matched by the same amount for babies so that's how the 55 million came about and it's it's a lot of money don't get me wrong but compared to what this government has spent on lots of other things on hospitality on um getting our high streets back up and running you know and and on older children it's kind of it's not that much and actually what we need to do is make sure that babies are given equal value as everybody else in society and at the moment they're not so so there's a baby boost which is a kind of recovery fund um, and then there's this really exciting new idea which i'm like really um excited by and keen about promoting this is the parent infant premium and this is a sustainable change so what we're saying is this is is not about funding to recover from covid what it's saying is that covid shone a light on the fact that there are huge inequalities in babies early experiences and outcomes and really depleted services to deal with that um, and that's an issue we need to tackle in light of COVID, but it's an issue we need to tackle anyway. We needed to tackle before this happened and, and we definitely need to tackle afterwards. So the parent from premium is money that goes into the system specifically to close gaps in outcomes in early development. It's sustainable. So it's, it's an amount of money that would go in, you know, every quarter. Um, and it's based on the pupil premium. So the pupil premium gives money to schools um, and the money is according to how many kids they've got from disadvantaged families in the school. And the money is specifically for the school to close gaps in outcomes between the disadvantaged kids and their peers. But actually, if we know the science of child development, we know that inequalities start long before kids go to school. And actually, the, one of the biggest factors in influencing those inequalities is not what happens in a classroom or a childcare setting, but what happens in the home environment and the community and families live. So what we're saying is that if, if government really wants to tackle these gaps in outcomes or, or level up, as it now calls it, then actually it needs to focus on the home environment preschool because it's too late if we just do try and do this at school age and we've, we've already let those kids down by then they shouldn't be getting to a point at school where they need to be helped to catch up so so what we're saying is that there should be a premium payment like the people premium that follows kids from the start and we're defining that as the last trimester of pregnancy all the way through um so the parent infant premium would end at three because that's when the early years premium kicks in and then the pupil premium um, and it would um, it would give local authorities and their partners a pot of money that's proportional to the number of disadvantaged kids in their local area to spend specifically on closing gaps in outcomes. Um, and they would be required to um, publish what they were doing with that money um, and to and there would be scrutiny on the outcomes to make sure that it was making a difference. So it's not ring fence money. They'd have the, decis the decision to spend it as they feel it's best with their local circumstances. It might be that they reopen a children's centre. It might be that they bolster their health visiting service. It might be that they create a specialist intervention like a parent infant team or all of those. Um, they can, but as long as it's something that is gonna make sure that their kids from more disadvantaged communities are really getting that extra help to develop well in the early years of life. So that's our second uh, recommendation. And then the third one is, um, just is core funding for services. So we know that um, across all of the services that work with families in early life, there have been enormous cuts in the last decade, whether that be public health, early help, children's centres, they're all, they're all really depleted. And whilst the other two um, policy proposals would be fantastic, what we want to be really clear is that they are not going to be sufficient to enable high quality services for all of our babies. And so they have to be paired with 
also closing the gaps um, in core funding for services. So three, baby boost, parent from premium and core funding. Those are our three asks. And it's interesting that uh, obviously reading this report at the same time as uh, today, I was listening, I was catching up on a few podcasts that I've missed out on over the last few months. Uh, and one of them from The Guardian today in focus, uh, it was called After a Decade of Austerity, What Now? Uh, and it's really interesting because it was kind of looking at uh, a local area in the uh, North East Yorkshire and Humber regions uh, and talking about how much money they'd had cut from their budgets over the last uh, so years and, and the kind of real problems that they had entering COVID. Uh, and I suppose in terms of children's services, we know that they've been some of the hardest hit areas. Uh, and I think certainly the second and third policy proposals would try and readdress some of that battle. So, you know, important sort of suggestions and, and hopefully uh, the government will consider them. How has the government kind of been informed about this report? Uh, so we um, we sent it to them. We we, we contacted um, lots of, of people, so uh, parliamentarians, ministers, civil servants. It's kind of gone to across all of the, the relevant departments. It's gone to all of them. Andrea Ledson, because she's doing her review of this area. So we know that they've got it and they've kind of acknowledged it. We hope that they read it and listen it and take, um, take it seriously. And we will be doing more work um, ahead of the spending review to push the policy proposals, um, particularly the parent infant premium, I think, is because that fits with what this government have already kind of signed up to for, for older children. It's not a, a kind of a radical shift in thinking for them. So we think that that's a kind of no brainer that they should be taking on board. Um, so we'll be really pushing that, but but all of them will be pushing um, and we'll continue with the First Ads on Days movement to shine a light on those enormous gaps in core funding. And on a related issue, obviously, at the uh, early on in lockdown, we all joined together and wrote letters to Boris Johnson. Have you got any update on, on that letter? Yeah, so we got a response from Joe Churchill, so the, the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State, who referenced Andrea Lettum's new review um, as a sign that the government was kind of looking seriously at the first 1,001 days um, and what they were doing for families in that area. That letter also references money that's gone to local authorities um, for COVID, this kind of 3.7 billion, um, which we talk about in the report because I think it's really important that we're clear about what that money is. In the letter, Joe kind of presents it as money that could be used to bolster services for, the first, for families in the first thousand one days. And that's definitely true, it could. But if we really know what's going on in local authorities, you know, they are in crisis. They're, they've got social care to worry about. They've got to get PPE. They've got a drop in all of their income as a result of, of lockdown. You know, and I think that there is a, a risk that that money could be accounted for many times. You know, government can keep mentioning it you know, I've seen them mention it in the context of homeless policy. I've seen them mention it. It's not going to solve all of the problems that they are referring to it as, 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 as solving. So we have to be really realistic that unless I think there is ring fenced money or, or targeted money, not necessarily targeted money for families in the first thousand one days, it, it's very unlikely that money will be spent on those families because the list of kind of priorities and emergency things um, that local authorities are thinking about um is kind of really long and we know that whilst whilst we know that the first thousand days should be a priority because actually it's it's a critical period of development that affects loads of things later on we know that local decision makers often don't prioritize it and so they need that kind of push to do so 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'd, I'd share the concerns that you've raised there about, about the response, really, that, you know, it's, it's all well and good giving line figures of money that might arrive at some point. But actually, we know that children don't often get high up on that list of demands. Uh, and, and that's why it's so important, you know, in terms of the policy proposals that things are, are done to, to highlight the group specifically. I suppose one of the examples and something I wanted to just mention today and, and ask for your thoughts on, uh, I've been on annual leave for a couple of weeks, but just before I went off, I uh, was involved in uh, a consultation with some of our members in uh, the County Durham uh, local authority. Uh, there they've cut, well, they're planning to cut the number of health visitors and school nurses. And I suppose, again, it's that kind of uh, the difference between the, the promise of a levelling up agenda and the belief in the importance of a thir the first thousand one critical days with the actual reality of areas cut in, primarily because their funding has been sliced and they can't afford the service anymore. Uh, what's quite sad as well is this seems to suggest that actually the service will be improved by having less specialist nurses in, in post, which obviously we believe is, is an absolute uh, lie to the, the public. Have you got any kind of thoughts on areas that are continuing to cut at this time? It's hugely difficult, isn't it? Because there just there isn't enough money in the system, and, and local decision makers are having to make some very very difficult decisions. What I would shine a light on is those local areas who are managing not only to sustain but to bolster their support for families in the first thousand one days. Um, you know, despite all of despite the decade of austerity and the additional challenges at the moment. And I think we have to learn from them and show what can be done and celebrate what can be done. But also there is a real thing about um, accountability here. So um, I don't think government does enough to hold local authorities to account for health assisting services. But I also don't think that the public uh, kind of are active in this in the way that they should be. Because perhaps so many people have now experienced a kind of depleted health service that they don't recognise what they should be getting or what the value of what they could be getting and how much better it could be. Um, but ultimately, you know, local authorities are now making decisions about health assisting services. Local authorities are accountable to the public. They're de democratically elected um, and they are not being challenged. You know, people, when it comes to local elections, people talk about the potholes and the bins. And unless we get better as a society about championing children and families in the early days, um, then, you know, we're not going to see that change across the board. So so I think that, that it's up to us as kind of campaigners, professional campaigners, to, to think about how we better get these messages across the, the public. Um, and that's kind of true. There's, there's sort of lessons from that in COVID. Generally, you know, we saw um, lots of people volunteer for the NHS in COVID. We saw lots of people kind of, out trying to help in their communities, I wonder how much of that was focused on helping families with young babies and how can we capture that kind of community spirit and the desire and the voice and kind of activate the population to really put pressure on, on, on local and national government to change things. Before we finish, I just wanted to ask if you've got anything that you wanted to plug from the first thousand one critical days that we've not already talked about. Oh, interesting. So we are just signing off our work plan for the next year. We've had a first steering group meeting, which is really exciting. Um, so um, we are looking at doing some work over the next six months around um, really distilling the evidence about the first thousand days, the gaps in services that exist, the impact those gaps are having on, and making a compelling argument that will really appeal to this government 
about why they should invest in that. So um, we will be co-producing those with people across the sector. So, you know, if people have got data or evidence or anecdotes they want to share with us, please do. And we'll build that into that. But also what we hope is to create a resource bank that, that is kind of power to everyone's elbow. So if you are a health visitor in a service in County Durham that's cutting, what we hope is that we can, that our kind of bank of evidence is, is part of your so that you can go into those discussions with commissioners and say, look, there's like there's really compelling evidence here that our service is making a difference and needs to be invested in. Um, and, and so we will be campaigning at a national level, but what we hope is that we can enable everybody to, to campaign better locally as well. So, so um, watch out for opportunities to get involved in both creating and using um, those kind of evidence briefs. We will be looking at um, really upping our kind of campaigning in the next six weeks, two months ahead of the, the um, comprehensive spending review. We, we're kind of not clear how and how that's happening. It's obviously all been thrown by COVID, um, but we want to just keep getting those messages out there that there needs to be investment in in the first thousand days. Yeah, certainly, and it kind of fills me with fear that uh, we've got to wait for the comprehensive spending review because it feels like that's been the, the sword that's sort of hung over children's service funding for so long. And, and every time we get to that spending review, nothing's really said about it. So, uh, yeah, hopefully this time it, it will be different. And again, I know when Andrea Ledson's uh, new role was uh, announced, my cynicism levels did go up quite a bit because I know that, you know, we've, we've kind of heard it before, but, you know, let's, let's hope that this is the opportunity and, and, and this is a time that things will, will be made better. Yeah, I mean, I think we were worried about the timescale of Andrea's review because she's not reporting until um, Christmas time. And obviously the spending review is happening in the autumn. The COVID response is happening right now. Um, so what we've been calling on is for to make sure that there's some sort of kind of interim report or something from Andrea that is, is going to, um, influence those earlier opportunities or that the government just does something about babies and there's you know doesn't doesn't need Andrea to tell them they can do some stuff but what I don't want is them to kind of every time we talk about babies to point to Andrea's review and in the meantime all of these opportunities get missed and the money gets spent on something else and then Andrea's review comes out in January with some fantastic recommendations but there's no money left in the bank um, so I think yeah we need to to um, make sure that that is going to influence the key decisions that are going to be made. Oh, that's brilliant. Thanks, Sally. Uh, so obviously I'm going to put lots of notes in the episode notes for today and uh, hopefully people follow them to have a look at the report, the executive summary, and also to share it around their own networks. And I've also uh, put it in my update to Mental Health Nurse Association members in the next Mental Health Nursing Journal. So they'll all be aware of the uh, really important report as well. So thanks for your time today and good luck with what you've got next. Okay, great. Thanks for talking to me, Dave.